Welcome back to the Practical Neurology Editor's Choice podcast, which discusses the Editor's Choice article from the February 2023 edition of Practical Neurology and complements the Editor's Highlights podcast, which was released in January. I'm Amy Ross-Russell. I'm a neurology trainee in Wessex. And in this podcast, I get the chance to take a deep dive into our editor's pick of the journal. Um, and I'm lucky enough to get to fire my questions at the author or, or authors of, that, of those papers. Today's a great topic to start the year with. We're going to talk about idiopathic normal pressure hydrocephalus with Dr. Christopher Carswell, who's a consultant neurologist at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital with an interest in cognitive neurology. He leads the Imperial Normal Pressure Hydrocephalus Clinic at Charing Cross Hospital. He chairs the ABN Specialist Interest Group on Normal Pressure Hydrocephalus, and he's also leading the current Cochrane Review on the effects of shunting in idiopathic MPH. And this article is a a really wonderful summary of both the historical content uh, within which we can understand normal pressure hydrocephalus, but it's also a really great synopsis of relevant data and a practical, sensible approach to managing these patients. So welcome, Chris. There's nobody better to talk to us. Morning, Amy. Thank you for inviting me. I think it would be really helpful just to start by defining normal pressure hydrocephalus and idiopathic normal pressure hydrocephalus and what the differences between those two groups are and what you mean when you say MPH. Okay, I mean, that's that's a good place to start. In normal pressure hydrocephalus, what is thought to happen is you get a, an increase in the pressure in the ventricles themselves, in the CSF there, and the ventricles expand. And eventually you'll get to a point where an equal and opposite force is exhibited between the ventricles and the brain matter itself, and you reach a a homeostasis. Now, in normal pressure hydrocephalus, the theory is that any increase in pressure above that point leads to a decompensation of this careful equilibrium and when that happens uh, patients present with uh, problems with gait, problems with cognition and problems with uh, control of urinary function and it's thought that when patients enter this state reducing the pressure um, with a ventricular peritoneal shunt or any kind of CSF shunt will alleviate these symptoms. This was first described by um, Hakeem and Adams in uh, 1965 um, in uh, a couple of it was three patients and these three patients uh, were patients who had a clear cause for the hydrocephalus I think one of them had a had a, a, a meningeal process that was undefined one was um, post-traumatic brain injury and I think the other one might have been post subarachnoid hemorrhage um, so there was a clear reason for the increase in pressure initially and these patients all reacted well to uh, ventricular atrial shunting Um, idiopathic normal pressure hydrocephalus is a situation where there is no clear cause uh, for the increase in pressure initially Um, but uh, three patients were described by the same team in 1965 who who didn't have a cause and and those patients responded well to shunting as well so that summarizes what hydrocephalus is or normal pressure hydrocephalus is to me when you think about idiopathic normal pressure hydrocephalus, do you see that as one group of patients or do you see that as a sort of uh, melting pot of, of different things that, that reach a final common pathway or a, a, a syndromic uh, presentation? I think it's a, it's a really good question. I don't think there's a lot of data to guide opinion. Um, so, so it is very much just my opinion. 
about that. And I think the, the classification of hydrocephalus is done poorly in general. And I know it's something that the hydrocephalus society are, are working on. You know, roughly you've got your patients who are young, who have hydrocephalus and it's treated at a young age, they're transitional cases. And then you've got patients who present with hydrocephalus, but it clearly looks congenital uh, morphologically, but they presented at a later age there. They're another subgroup. And then you've got the secondary normal pressure hydrocephalus, which was the original description. And then you've got these idiopathic cases where where no one knows what the cause is. And I think there are lots of risk factors for people developing idiopathic uh, normal pressure hydrocephalus. And I, I suspect it is a heterogeneous group that we're not particularly well able to, to subdivide at this stage. Uh, that doesn't make it an awful lot uh, different from many neurological syndromic syndromes like MS, for instance, which it probably isn't one disorder, but lots of different ones that all present in a similar way. So how do how do you organise it? How do you think about them? Do you, do you go by likely pathology? Do you go by features that demonstrate potential shunt responsiveness, or or do you look at sort of age and demographic groups? How do you separate them out in your head? Well, um, I think that the most important thing to say is there is no pathological hallmark, really. No of normal pressure hydrocephalus patients who who have died with this disease don't don't have a specific pathology. So. Thinking about pathology isn't isn't directly compatible with 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 where you assess MPH. I think the first thing is is the clinical symptoms that the patient has. Do they have a gait dominant syndrome? And if they have cognitive impairment, is it the kind of cognitive impairment that you expect to have with hydrocephalus? Those are, those are the most important parts. And then once once you have a clinical examination that makes sure that there's nothing else that might be causing Hakim's triad of symptoms, because there's lots of of causes of, of people not walking well and not thinking well in, in a population over the age of 60, which is when you start to think about idiopathic MPH. So clinical examination is really important. Uh, once that's done um, and you're not found in myelopathy or some such, then um, you rely on the scan findings. It, the scan findings can be very specific in, in MPH. And I think that's something that hasn't been understood, certainly in the dark era of MPH. And you can tell if a patient's got a large skull, you can measure that, and that usually points to a congenital cause. You can see if there's an aqueduct stenosis, you can see if the, the ventricles seem to have lost their elasticity and it seems like it's a chronic process. Those tend to be the congenital cases that are presented as, in adulthood. Um, but if you've got um, good features of hydrocephalus, and I'm not talking about just a raised dividend index, I'm talking about the more radiological specific features, and you've got a good, you know, a good history and, and good examination of the typical clinical features, then that's when you th- you start to think this this could well be a, a shunt sensitive syndrome or a shunt responsive syndrome, and you can go on to do further provocative tests. I think what's very difficult in in MPH is that um, it's well understood that the radiological findings precede the clinical ones, and there's a period where you can have asymptomatic hydrocephalic features. So it's always difficult to know when a patient has a, a scan that's pretty good for MPH, whether or not their their symptoms are actually due to that or whether or not they're due to other things. And that's why the clinical evaluation is is, is really, really key. Thank you. That's fan- that's fantastic. We might come back to some of those radiological features in a moment and, and some case specifics, but I'm going to push you a little further on the on the diagnostic process, if I may, and, and go through what what you think are the, are the really important things to pull out in clinic. So what should we be hearing? What cognitive syndrome should we be hearing? What features of gait disturbance would be 
compatible or, or particularly suggestive of MPH? And what should we be really careful to be asking about when we see people who have presented with, with that triad of problems? I think it's interesting. The first thing you said there was what cognitive features. I, th- I think that's that should come secondary, actually. I think it's a gate dominant syndrome. And the concept of someone having a, a dominant cognitive impairment without a, a concurrent gait impairment is a red flag for this not being MPH. So, I mean, if someone has an established dementia and the, the, the feel of that dementia is a progressive amnestic syndrome and it, it, it sounds like it's Alzheimer's disease and then you find hydrocephalus on the scan, that, that should be a red flag that the hydrocephalus might not be relevant in this case. Um, the, the sorts of things that you want to hear is someone who is above the age of 60, who has a progressive history of gait impairment. Now, the first thing that I often see is a slight imbalance. And then slowly over time, that develops into a slower walk with a, a, a shuffle. Um, the, the gait becomes broad-based and they take many, many steps when they turn. And this is something that progresses over time. The cognitive impairment is, is true and it does happen. And it might even be the first symptom. You know, I've got some high-performing individuals who have a high level of daily cognitive challenge. And they say to me, I'm, I just can't concentrate like I can like before and I, I, I can't multitask like I, I could before. Something's not right. And the more um, MPH specialists you speak to, the more they recognise that presentation. And it can it, that can be the early thing. But usually those patients have imbalance as well. The the cognitive pattern you get with hydrocephalus is, is fairly nonspecific. I mean, they get... Uh, reduced phonemic fluency, they get slow processing speed, and they become slightly disexecutive. Um, difficulty with task switching, difficult with reversal of, of digit span, um, and, and, and that sort of thing. These are not specific again, and can can overlap quite a lot with, with lots of um, neurodegenerative processes, particularly um, vascular uh, cognitive impairment and um, PSP. Yeah, thank you. That's that's fantastically helpful. And sort of thinking maybe particularly about those differentials, when you're examining somebody, are there particular parts of the examination that you focus on that you that you look at very carefully to perhaps exclude some of those mimics? Well, I mean, if uh, I think it's all about the history. I mean, I'm always telling my juniors that it's all history. If someone said you can have a history or examination, I'd take the history every time. And so it really, you should be spending most of your your consultation speaking to the patient and their relatives and finding out about risk factors for secondary MPH, about childhood illness, about uh, developmental history, and sometimes family history can be relevant as well. And then taking a a good history of of the gait impairment, falls and cognitive impairment. When it comes to examination, um, the the most important thing, and the thing that isn't done well by by lots of people, is, is a really good description of the gait and what it looks like. Um, I try and do a tinnity gait scale on my patients in clinic. Um, you get good at it when you know about it, but it, it's it, when you start to do that, you start to approach gait analysis in a more structured way. I think it, it, I also do a, a timed 10 meter walk test in clinic often using an app, um, which, which, which I'm playing around with and finding increasingly helpful. Um, I, th- I think from a, a neurological examination point of view, it's really, really important to exclude common causes of gait impairment and that's that's 
your myelopathies. Um, you know, it's quite common for people to have a spondylosis causing a myelopathy in this age group, and you don't want to miss that. You know, that often causes the urinary problems as well. I think when it comes to the, the actual neurological examination, I spend quite a lot of time with eye movements. Um, you know, PSP is, is something that does come up in this cohort. Parkinsonian features are important as well. So um, upper limb dyspraxia, I think, is, is something I pay attention to because I, I, I don't like that in idiopathic normal pressure hydrocephalus. It's a bit of a, a red flag. And, and you know, doing things like alternating hand movement tests and looking for bradykinesia. Moving on, as you were saying before about the radiology and those characteristic findings, for listeners, there's a there's a really excellent figure two in the paper, which you can download at the at the blurb at the bottom of the podcast. Take a look at figure two. It's a really great one for for referring to. Chris, I wonder if you could just talk us through the findings that you expect to see um, on brain imaging and how we might use those. Yeah, I mean, there's a background to this, actually. I mean, originally when, in 1965, they didn't have scans, um, so they had to rely on pneumoencephalograms um, to diagnose hydrocephalus. Now, those are a, a historic and fairly barbaric process whereby um, you do a, a, a lumbar puncture and then you inflate air back in into the space and take radiographs with the patient in different positions that often patients were tied to a a special kind of chair and then rotated and they had successive radiographs. And as you can tell from the description of the procedure, it's very user dependent. And it's clear from the descriptions way back when that there was a lot of information being gathered that wasn't necessarily being presented. I'm, I'm positive that the people who are doing those who are good at it got quite a lot of information about it that they kept to themselves or they, they inherently just knew. They could tell whether or not there was, there was crowding at the vertex by the way that the gas travelled. And over time, um, that went out of use because it was barbaric, the complication rate was quite high, and newer, less invasive methods such as CT and MR came about. And initially, when people started using these, they used ventricular megaly as a, as a raw indicator of potential hydrocephalus. And I think that was where probably some of the, the initial pitfalls in, in the diagnosis lay. Over time, um, it's become clear that patients with certain radiological features are more shunt responsive than others. This hasn't been well studied in randomised controlled trials, but um, Karen Cockham, who's kind enough to let me use her her atlas in the paper, did a retrospective study weighing up the most important features and then applied those to um, an MPH cohort that they had that was, was, was very well evaluated. And they found that if you had a score of over four from uh, their, their atlas, then you were likely to improve with, with shunting. And certainly if you had a score of over eight, you really were more likely to improve with shunting. Anything less than less than five and, and you shouldn't, you, you, you don't Im- improve. Um, so I take that to mean if you have a, a score of four or less, then I, I don't usually consider you for shunt surgery and I don't usually do predictive testing. The features that they refer to are, there's, there's a lot of them, but it's quite quick to, to make a score when you're familiar with the scale. And um, the most important of them, I mean, the Evans index, which is a, a ratio of the breadth of, the, of the, the brain compared to the widest point of the temporal horns, is a good measure, but not in, probably in isolation. And anything more than a ratio of 0.3 is, is potential. And the bigger it gets, the more likely you are to have um, a responsive MPH. But it's not just about the size of the ventricles that's important. It really is the shape. And the closal angle, which is on a coronal view at the level of the posterior commissure, you can measure the, the, the angle that the corpus callosum creates. I mean, it's supposed to be more than 90 degrees. 
And the more it is less than 90 degrees, um, the more likely it is that you've got um, MPH. And the narrower the angle becomes, you can see the, the frontal matter being squashed and you get uh, effacement of the vertex as well. And all of these different measures are included in, in the atlas to generate this score. One of the more interesting things you can look at is actually um, deep white matter periventricular hyperintensities, which are a feature of, of severe hydrocephalus that actually indicate um, a, a more likely shunt responsive uh, syndrome. And how does how does that radiology compare to the the tests that we use, the clinical tests that we use, the tap test and, and infusion test and things in terms of predicting things? Because we're limited, aren't we, in, in MPH? We're making a clinical diagnosis of probable MPH rather than definite being a shunt responsive syndrome. Yeah, no, I think you can't use radiology by itself, or can't you? I mean, that, that it's an interesting question actually because um, in the Symphony 2 trial, which was a, a large randomised control trial, we might we might talk about in a, in a little while. But it, it, in that study, they they randomised patients to a lumbar peritoneal shunt or a delayed a delayed shunt um, in patients who are thought to have idiopathic MPH, and those patients had to have very specific radiological features and then a CSF which which demonstrated no secondary cause. They didn't actually do tap testing on those patients and they were just enrolled and the, the trial was successful. And following that, the, the Japanese hydrocephalus uh, guidelines changed and Madoka Nakajima published those, I think, the year before last. And they updated them to say that if you have very specific uh, clinical features in a specific scan, um, provided the LP didn't show anything abnormal, you could proceed just to shunting. Whereas if the scan was less specific, then you needed more provocative tests. And that's always sort of been the the the, the guidelines that the the international guidelines that the American group have, have, have published as well. But in in reality, I don't know many neurosurgeons who'd be happy to do a a, a shunt without some evidence that, that the patient's going to improve from it. And uh, I think the culture is slightly different in Japan, potentially. And I know a, a few um, elite clinicians in in, in the US um, do shunts based on the clinical features. Um, but m- most people I speak to, certainly in the UK, want some evidence that there's going to be improvement. And this is all because you can have the radiological features without any symptoms at all because they, they precede the clinical the clinical presentation. So I think in, in my book, you have to have, at this stage of the evidence, we have to have a good clinical phenotype, a good radiological phenotype, and some response to a provocative test. That's really interesting. It'll be interesting to see whether it changes over time as imaging improves. Let's talk about management. Is it, is it just shunt or no shunt? Is that, are those are options. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, one of the things that uh, you speak to people who don't believe in MPH, and they often say it's, it's just aging or whatever, and it's not a shunt responsive syndrome. But the, I, I never hear a great interest in why why there's any change happening at all. And the the we know that sort of lymphatic drainage is impaired, CSF resorption is impaired. You know the, the development of hydrocephalus is associated with with measurable biological changes and I, I think it's a it's a process that 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 isn't biologically neutral um, and I think you know the 
it seems fairly intuitive to me that that hydrocephalus will affect other processes that are occurring in an aging brain at the same time, such as neurodegenerative processes. Now, it hasn't been studied greatly, but it's very intuitive to me that that will be the case. So, so yes, it's important um, from a patient perspective whether or not someone responds to a shunt, but from a biological and a neurological um, perspective, I think it's actually really important to know why this is happening in the first place, how it's affecting brain health in general, and and what other measures could be done other than shunting, you know, potentially to 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 prevent it from developing in the future or to, to um, modify um, neurodegenerative disease um, in the aging brain. So, what else can you do for your patients aside from the shunt? And perhaps in those people who you don't think a shunt's going to help, are there other things that you offer? Well, I mean, this is the difficulty of managing neurodegenerative disease, I think. Um, The risk factors for developing hydrocephalus, um, you know, are vascular risk factors by and large. Um, And it's it's not known if modifying those uh, protects from hydrocephalus developing over time. So really, if the patient's not to have a shunt, it's about providing as good a diagnosis as you can so that they can set their stall out and you can manage risk of falls you can make sure that you know lpas are in process that people can understand the the future and and set out their lives accordingly and let's talk about shunts themselves so i appreciate you're not a neurosurgeon and um i won't push you on the the absolute specifics of the procedure but what are the main risks and and the big main complications to to think about particularly in the in an age group who are going to be more frail and more comorbid it's a good question, isn't it? Um, the procedure itself is largely considered safe. And it, I guess I have to specify what procedure I'm describing. I mean, originally people did ventricular atrial shunts and um, that, that isn't done. By and large, people have either ventricular peritoneal shunts done now or um, lumboperitoneal shunts. And there's a cultural difference, I think, in different countries where one is, is, is preferred over the other. But the the UK has a, a shunt registry that's been in operation since the 1990s, but that's not just for MPH, it's for all, all causes of, of shunting, um, you know, be it childhood hydrocephalus or not. And, and that's shown that over time, uh, the complication rate is falling, um, infection rates are falling. And in the randomised control trial evidence in, in idiopathic MPH, what you find is that the overall morbidity is about 20%. Um, but the, the vast majority of the, the problems that people experience aren't necessarily specific to, to having a shunt. You know, it's, um, so the, there was no mortality in the Symphony uh, 2 trial that was shunt-related. I think you know one patient died of lung cancer, another one committed suicide. In the, 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 the PENS trial that's, that's, that's just been accepted for publication, I think there was um, so, you know, some sepsis and a, and a stroke on a contralateral side. So mm. the shunting shunting thought to be safe. Low, low pressure syndromes, um, subdural hemorrhages or hygromas do develop, but the vast majority of those are managed conservatively. Um, and I think you'll find a, a surgical intervention rate for a subdural afterwards will be about will be about five percent. Um, Lawrence Watkins and Armand Homer, working at Queen Square, have, have published quite a few papers on the early m- um, mortality after shunting an MPH, and they find it to be to be to be zero uh, for mortality, and reoperation rates are low, and that's 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 pretty similar um, uh, across high end units um, uh, across the board. 
um, the 20% morbidity from the Symphony 2 trial was from a, a study that, that incorporated 40 different units. Um, so so it was, was, was less controlled. What I, what I would say is it seems to be safe. Um, at my unit, I, I, I don't get a lot of people needing subdural surgery after, after shunting. Presumably that's hand in hand with a careful anaesthetic assessment and a consideration of comorbidities. No, I think that, and that's re- that's really is the key. People have done research. Um, I think it was Coup last year um, presented a paper where they looked at a you know a hospital frailty index, which is a, an index where you generate how comorbid someone is by their um, their ICD ten codes, and they find that if you've got comorbid patients, they they don't do as well, and their complication rate is higher. I don't do a, a clinical frailty in, index in my patients yet oh, i know the, the different groups are, are working on that sort of thing um mm. but i do use a lot of gut instinct and if you've got a, a patient who's very comorbid with lots of medications who clearly is an anesthetic risk i that they often know it and their families know it as well and mm. i don't usually consider these patients at all and i, th- I think some pragmatism is required yeah, it's hard to put uh, gut instinct on your protocol, isn't it? it? It is, but that's about clinical experience. And I think probably an amount of clinical experience in MPH has been lost because many people didn't believe it's, it existed at all. Mm. It's going to take us a little while before we, we develop that clinical experience to be able to use pragmatism correctly. Mm. So I, I, I'm tightening and modifying the guidelines for referral to my clinic um, in-house all the time. But mm. quite recently, I, I was looking through my my patients who are coming up and I, I found someone who'd been admitted with delirium to, to one of the hospitals I work at and they've been found to have hydrocephalus and they've been discharged with a with a, an appointment to see me without in, any interaction with me and and I can see that they saw the heart failure nurse a couple of weeks ago and they said that they're not fit for a heart failure clinic and they should be referred to palliative care and I, I, that's that's exactly the sort of patient that you need not to see in in, in non-pressure hydrocephalus clinic where your capacity is fairly limited and you want to be be seeing patients who might be shunt responsive. Um, so if if your gut instinct when you see a patient is that they're, they're frail, they've got established dementia, surgery isn't, isn't, isn't going to be safe for them, then you need to have that discussion at the point of contact with, with healthcare really. Um, yeah. Equally, I think the investigation of, of MPH is inherently um, traumatic and invasive. You're talking about patients having to come for walking tests, having to come for scans, having to be still for those scans, and then they're having to have either lumbar punctures or lumbar drains. And then if all of that works out, they have to have a procedure where they'll be put to sleep, someone will make an incision in their skull, they'll drill a hole through it and put a tube into a ventricle and put the other end into the abdominal cavity. And if you explain that process to frail patients who present with you often delirium and have, have hydrocephalus when they're imaged for that delirium. The, the families often are horrified by the, the thought that you may want to do this. So I, th- I think, you, you know, you have to be pragmatic about who you assess and, and there's some common sense that goes along with that. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose the other side of that and, and getting to the meat of it, I suppose, for me is you've talked about data supporting a long-term benefit, but what is the benefit that we see? What what clinical effects do you see as a benefit? What do you tell your patients they should expect as, as a good outcome? If you've got a positive TAP test, then there's good evidence that you will, you will benefit. The vast majority of patients with a positive TAP test benefit from shunt surgery. 
Um, or, and the same goes for lumbar drains or lumbar infusion tests. And the, occasionally you get um, people who are super responders. Um, Tobias Lanzheimerich working in Salford calls them super responders, um, but they're quite rare. Um, and that'll be someone who goes from barely being able to walk to being able to walk normally or near normally. That that does happen, but it's rare. Um, more frequently, you find people improve a bit. And how do you how do you quantify the magnitude of a bit? Well, it's it's hard. Um, in the European MPH trials and in Symphony Two, and indeed in 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 Pens and uh, Thomas Queen Square trial, you find that. Uh, about 70% of patients improved by a score of, of, of at least one on an MRS scale. Once again, that's that's not very intuitive to for patients to understand and and you know some work needs to be done about you know how to explain the magnitude a little better, I think. But essentially it means they'll be a bit more stable and they'll they'll do a bit better than they are now. And if you're talking about someone who's over the age of 60 who's got bad problems walking, they'll they'll take that. There are studies that have observed patients over a long time in a non-controlled but prospective way to sh- see how how long the benefit might last. And um, from Japanese studies, it, certainly the benefit in, in under 80-year-olds seems to last, you know, three or four years minimum. And for the over 80s, it starts to tail off thereafter. And I think, you know, in, in, in the European trial, at, at, a, at a mean of about five years, um, 40% of 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 the MPH patients had died compared to an age match control of about 25%. So patients with MPH, you know, do have a slightly worse prognosis than, than age match controls, but they can get a, a good benefit that can last for a period of years. Yeah, and I suppose for some of them, that's the difference between independent living or or managing things for themselves or, or dependency. Yeah, um, I guess one of the, one of the problems with with MPH as a, a, having only the, the shunt or no shunt, um, if someone says you're going to benefit at all, um, most patients will, will, will want to take that chance. Um, and if there's, you know, because you've got a chance of, of improving somewhat versus versus no chance. Yes. Is it, is it all gait? Um, presumably the research is predominantly gait-based, but clinically, do you, do you think the real impact from the shunt is on gait? Do you see much in terms of cognitive improvement? Yes, um, you do. The The evidence from the literature isn't strong on this, but there's a Japanese trial that, that followed up 400 people um, prospectively um, after shunting, and they, they showed really elegantly that um, after only three months, the gait had improved quite significantly. Um, but it, it wasn't until the six-month mark that you started to see an improvement in the, in the cognition. So I think cognition can take longer to improve after shunt surgery, and that's one of the reasons why I, I don't pay all that much attention to improvement scores in in, in cognition from tap testing. But, but, but there isn't a lot of uh, randomised control trial data suggesting that cognition improves, but anecdotally, yes, it, it does improve, and it improves in a way that you expect it to, but it can sometimes take some time, and it usually improves far less than the gate. Let's look at your protocol. So for, for those with reference to the paper, that's figure three, where Chris has outlined uh, what they do in Imperial um, and your sort of standardised approach to, to normal pressure hydrocephalus. Without <laughs> being provocative, do you, do you think this is the gold standard of care? Do you think this is what a sort of pragmatic approach to these patients is and, and should be sort of as a, as a national standard? Um, it's a difficult question, really. I mean, I don't, I don't think that, that what we do even adheres to 
uh, the international the Japanese guidelines anymore, but it's it's what we think is is the right thing to do in our care setting uh, at Imperial. It's it's fairly similar to the Quokio Finnish protocol, which is, is is relatively well established. But I think that the most important thing that you can do when you're you're a neurologist managing an MPH is you have to have a good relationship with your neurosurgical department. I, I have a very good relationship with Kevin Tang and Mark Wilson, and we talk about MPH a lot and we're, we're happy about the, the the way that we do things but it's taken a while to get there and lots of discussions over a long period of time when I first came um, to, to be interested in MPH Charing Cross there was no real protocol so it's something we've developed and and I think what you do will very much depend upon what your neurosurgeon is comfortable with and what they think pragmatically they can achieve so at Charing Cross um, I, we insist on having patients who have gait impairment and they have to have an IMPH rad scale score that's that's over five and if that's the case then we'll move to a CSF tap test and that's a 40 mil tap uh, with a Tinetti scale and gait 10 meter walk time assessment with physiotherapist before and after ideally as long after as you can manage on the day but minimum of two hours um, and we do do cognition scales as well, largely for interest, more than than using them as a criteria for to decide upon shunting. And if the patient improves by 10%, uh, then we consider that a positive test. Now, tap tests are flaky. Um, if a, You're supposed to do a self-timed walking test. And if a patient wants to self-time the before and then force the after quickly, then you'll get um, uh, you know an artificial improvement. And you have to believe patients are willing to... to apply by the rules you set. Equally, if a patient has a, a 10 meter walk time of over a minute and that improves by 10%, that will probably result in a really meaningful difference for them. Whereas if a patient has quite a, a fast walking time, but it's just unstable, then a 10, 10% isn't that much. We set the bar quite low with 10%. That's that's what um, many of the clinicians in, in the UK do. And I and it's it, it's something that I justify by the fact that we, we do our tap test as a day case and we don't have the capacity to be able to reassess people formally for very long periods after the tap test. The tap test we can also um, produce in the 80s. Um, they, they observe patients for the next week in hospital, I think. Um, we just can't do that anymore. So if patients say they, they got better um, in the week following and the, the, the relatives are very corroborative of that, then I, I think you have to accept th- those data as well. What we also do with our, our tap test, which is is something that's ev- in evolution, is we uh, perform dementia biomarkers with the patient's consent. So we look at A-beta 4240 levels, but we also look at P-tau 181 to see if that's relevant in terms of neurogeneration. And we also uh, do a neurofilament light. Um, and there's quite a, a lot of evidence out there that there is a specific profile that you get in populations with MPH where um, the the A beta forty forty two well A beta forty two and forty are low and the P tau one eight one supposed to be low and the neurofilament light is also supposed to be um, low as well. So if you're starting to get people who've got you know clear um, Alzheimer's disease profiles and they've got a cognitive syndrome that matches that, then you can take that into account when you're recommending the, the potential benefit of shunting. I think equally, if you have a raised neurofilament light, then that makes you think twice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if patients fail our tap test, then we're lucky in that we have the facility to do an external lumbar drain, which not everyone does. And we can we can do lumbar infusion tests um, as, as well if, if that's preferred, which can be occasionally. But you, you usually go to a, a drain, would you, next? 
Yes, and that's where the, the neurosurgeons will admit the patient for a few days um, and drain lumbar CSF uh, at a set rate. Um, that's got a slightly higher morbidity associated with it, potentially meningitis, although I must say I haven't seen that. And, and also you can get low pressure syndromes more frequently as well. And if that's positive, then patients have a shunt. And if it's negative, then particularly if the neurofilament light is raised, we, we don't recommend shunting. Mm. Um, some centres in the world will will do will go on and do intracranial pressure monitoring um, in those those patients before considering shunting. But we we don't go we don't go that far. There probably are a few patients from who who have negative lumbar drains who who do improve. The the studies well conducted studies um, over the past twenty years have shown that. But I think that having the neurofilament light and and some of the other you know, radiological features we're more aware of now is 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 helping, but there's there's quite a lot of work to be done in in terms of of looking at this from a, a, an evidence point of view and doing uh, trials to to confirm suspicions. On the on the drain test, are they having a daily walk or is it just a walk at the end? The the physiotherapists are quite active at, at Charing Cross and they will they they will assess people uh, repeatedly, um, but but the protocol varies depending on which which centre you're in. Mm-hmm. And then presumably afterwards, it's a an MDT with with discussion over your cases and and then subsequent discussion with patients on the basis of what you'd recommend. That would be the gold standard. Um, what happens in in our centre is that I I see patients first, and I take them to my dementia MDT where we look at the radiology, and once we're happy to proceed to tap testing, um, the I'll organise the the tap test itself. Um, and and if it's positive, the surgeons are happy to to go ahead usually, and if it's negative, then uh, you know they may go for a lumbar drain depending on what the clinical uh, paradigm is. If the surgeons have a positive test, they just go ahead. If they have a negative test, then usually we have we have an MDT between the surgeons and myself. Fantastic, thank you. And one tricky scenario: what about when someone has a shunt put in and, and then they don't respond? Do you find that's a particularly challenging scenario with patients or, or maybe their families? And and how do you then start your reassessment process? So it's a, it's a good question, and I think that's the advantage of neurologists being involved in patient care from an earlier time point because you can be explicit about what lies ahead and the potential for for not responding. And I think if you have you know, any features of concurrent neurodegenerative disease, be it Parkinsonism or, you know, slightly slowly initiated vertical saccades or something that makes you think there might actually be a PSP here or whatever, then you can say that to the patient before they go into tap testing and say, look, we think there's more than one thing going on here. You know, shunting may not be the thing that helps and and we have to prepare ourselves for that. If if a patient doesn't improve immediately with a, a shunt, then the the surgeons have protocols to change the shunt settings. Um, they like to change the CSF pressure slowly at first to prevent subdurals and hygromas and things. But, but they they have protocols where they will uh, progressively uh, change the shunt settings to be to be certain there's no benefit from that shunt. Um, I know in America, any uh, MPH neurologists. Uh, alter the shunt settings themselves sometimes, but that's not something we do and our neurosurgeons do that um, for, for us. Hmm. Important MDT. Thank you. That's great. Just to let listeners know, there's some really fantastic cases uh, dotted through the, the review article, which helped to sort of bring that uh, pro forma to life a bit and to work through different scenarios, which I'm sure several of which will be familiar 
Chris, that's been really fantastic to, to sort of break it down and, and get to know how the thinking in the field is developing. As you say, there's, there's clearly a long way to go, but, but a lot of work being done. If you've, uh, if you've listened to any of my previous podcasts, you may remember I like to ask people what drew them into a particular subspecialty. And I've never been more fascinated. What, what, what was it about MPH that, that got you involved and got you really interested? Well, I mean, it's the, as Jeremy Rees said on one of your previous podcasts, there's loads of bits of, of neurology that, that are interesting. And you can have a wonderful career doing lots of different bits, be that neuromuscular or muscle or, or spine or, or, or stroke or uh, cognition or, or movement disorders or whatever, really. And they're all, they're all completely valid. And I, I think whenever, if you're a junior listening to this podcast, then I, I think if, if you enter a clinical situation and you feel uncomfortable about it, then it's possible that the reason that you feel uncomfortable is because there isn't good evidence to help guide you in that specific situation. And that should actually be a, a, a bell ringing that there's opportunity here. And if you look into the, the historical data about the disease in that situation, you'll probably find there's a want for more data and then it becomes really interesting and it becomes contextualised and then you can find your own way. And, and that's kind of what happened here. I mean, I have a background in prion disease. I'm interested in cognition, but they, those patients never work well anyway. So gait problems with cognitive problems were, was always of an interest to me. And then um, going through um, my training um, I, to be a cognitive neurologist, I worked in lots of different units. And by and large, people uh, didn't believe MPH existed. And radiologists as well as, as, as neurologists. And those neurologists are extremely respected people who who I've, I, I, I think are amazing. Um, and then I... Uh, through the course of my training, I interacted with individuals who I, I respected equally who didn't have that opinion. Steve Riddell in Australia was one. And I think you know Ron Pierce at Charing Cross was another. Um, and so when I became a, a cognitive neurologist and these patients started getting referred to me, I, I thought, well, you know, actually, I need to take a careful look at this and, and find out what the evidence actually says. Why, why has this developed? Why is the controversy at all? Um, and, you know, I, I think the, the controversy is valid. And, and I think... Probably it results from ascertainment bias, valid ascertainment bias from from different clinicians. So if you've got someone who has an established dementia and they have hydrocephalus on their scan, it, it will only require you doing a few failed tap tests or someone having a shunt having a terrible complication before you think that that's a terrible thing to do. And and actually this probably doesn't exist as a syndrome. Um, and that that will contrast quite differently from someone who's got a, a, a predominant gait impairment who sees a neurosurgeon who does a shunt and he can see there's a benefit. And and, uh, and I think, you know, both of those situations are probably correct. It's just you have to consider the correct patient in the correct context to get the right answer. So so uh, fi finding a, a, a syndrome that, that was controversial, where there was a, a lack of clinical evidence to base um, judgments on, was was the appeal for me, and also the, the you know the the fact that it was a cognitive and gait uh, dominant syndrome. That's fantastic. I really like turning discomfort into opportunity. I think that's a a, a great phrase. I'll remember. Final question: What what do you think are the really important areas to focus on? What, what's the question you'd like to see answered in the in the next ten or twenty years in this field? Oh, there there, there are just so many. I mean, it's it's fairly poorly evolved. I mean, I, I think. For a start, there needs to be more evidence about uh, randomised control evidence for for that shunting works. Um, there are you know, four trials uh, published 
um, or at least partly published. And the case numbers are still fairly fairly low. If you add them all together, then there are still only 120 patients and half of those have had LP shunts versus VP shunts. And I, I think meta-analysis is important, which is something I'm working on. But I think it, I think more evidence will be needed before it's truly accepted as a as a as a shunt responsive situation in in, in certain conditions. Um, but I, I think there's so much more to be done. We don't shunt many patients in this country compared to many countries, and looking at, into why is, is is important. I think having pathways for patients is really important that we don't really have at the moment. Um, I'm working with um, a team in UCL at the moment looking at what happens to patients who, who come from community memory clinics, and, and I think that needs work. I think the development of MDTs needs work. I mean, I think... There's not many uh, neurological units that are interested in MPH in the country. Um, I know that there's Tobias Lance Heinrich in, in Manchester, there's Naomi Warren in, in, in Newcastle, there's um, you know George Pengas in Southampton who's been going longer than any of the rest of us. I think there needs to be many more. I think we all need to be engaged and, and we all need to have a plan of what to do with these patients because the clinical questions are going to come up more often, not less often. We've got an ageing population and a really, really decent percentage of 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 the septuagenarian and 80 octogenarian population have radiological criteria for for mph and we need to know what to do with these patients and um trying to reach out and talk to these clinicians and offer a place where that's possible is is something i've been working on that's why we developed the abn mph sig that's not a a group that has met physically yet and it's it's one that tends to be um online we've had one meeting we've got another one coming up I'm very happy to to invite anyone who's interested in coming. But the reason it's been online mainly is so that we can meet with the neurosurgeons as well, who are critical, but we also have neuroscientists, therapists, um, psychologists, etc. Um, and that that's where I think we'll start to to gain consistency, work on pathways. And then from a from a scientific point of view, why why does not everyone respond to shunts? That's very interesting to me. Um, and the interaction with neurodegeneration and hydrocephalus in general is of interest to me. And I think there's quite a lot of work needs to to be done on that. You know, I've, I've recently got an MRC CARP award and I'm going to be investigating some of those things over the next couple of years. Well, fantastic. We, we look forward to seeing the results of those. That, that has been an absolutely wonderful journey through the sort of evolving understanding of, of a, a really complex condition. And thank you so much for, for your expert uh, knowledge, for your wisdom and, and the fruit of clearly many years of thinking very hard about this. Um, th- thanks for having me on, Amy. It's, it's, it was, it's really a delight to be invited, although I admit to having a certain amount of imposter syndrome. Listeners, remember the articles are available free to download from the description uh, just below the podcast uh, and available to subscribe on Spotify uh, or or Apple. It's got um, lots of additional history. It's got, as I mentioned, those really great case reports and some really useful tables and figures for, for reference. As always, we love to receive feedback. Uh, if anyone has uh, the chance to just let us know what you think, any ways that we can improve these podcasts, we'd, we'd be delighted to hear from you. It's been really wonderful to to talk to Chris. So thank you once again to him uh, and goodbye. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Goodbye.